You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 467 of the Columbia Calling podcast. You asked, we delivered. Thank you to Mark in Toronto for this well, suggestion. The suggestion was to get the director of Columbia Risk Analysis, that's Sergio Guzman. You know him and you love him because he's still the most popular, well, he's well, the guest on the most popular episode that we've had when we explained why the Parro Nacional demonstrations were taking place two years ago. Anyhow, Mark asked for us to get him on to talk about, well, Chinese interests in Colombia. So we've uh, done a We've done an episode on Chinese investment and interests in Colombia, and of course, very timely as well, because Colombia Risk Analysis have just brought out a report on that very subject. So we'll be here in segment three with Sergio Guzman, director of Colombia Risk Analysis, and his colleague, Sara Torres, uh, who also is one of the authors of the report. So very interesting podcast coming up, but we do not embark on the China story until we have... Well, we've provided you with a brief overview of what happened this past week in the cabinet, in Gustavo Pe President Gustavo Petro's cabinet, and the reshuffle, as some people put it, the purge, that other people put it, depending where you stand politically. But what happened? What was the chaos that took place in Gustavo Petro's cabinet this past week? So we explain that briefly, and then launch into uh, the Chinese question, let's say, the China investment into Colombia. What are they investing in? Why? Where? And so on. And fascinating episode with two experts in their field. A thank you as well to Elisa in New York for her well, the her generous uh, sponsorship uh, on Patreon of the Columbia Calling Podcast. Emily and myself are incredibly grateful, as always. So thank you. You can always sponsor us at www.patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling. Every little counts. So thank you again for that, Elisa in New York. So we'll be going over now to uh, Emily Hart with the news, the Columbia News Brief. And then we'll be back with Sergio Guzman and... Sara Torres talking about Chinese investments in Colombia. So thank you again. Listen to the notes now from our sponsors and then the news and then segment three. Bye-bye. The Colombia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. We are also sponsored by 
BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator providing a wonderful range of exclusive small group shared tours for those over 50, along with customizable private tours to both popular and off-the-map destinations throughout this beautiful and diverse country. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a unique private package of your own, just complete the form on the Columbia Calling website, that's www.columbiacalling.co, or the BNB Columbia Tours website, that's www.bnbcolumbia.com, and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all of your questions and to start the planning of your exclusive Colombian adventure. So that's bnbcolumbia.com and latinnews.com. Thank you for supporting our sponsors. I'm Emily Hart and these are your top stories for the week of May the 1st, 2023. Major shake-up in the government this week as President Gustavo Petro requested the protocolary resignation of all of his ministers in preparation for an extensive cabinet reshuffle. So far, he has accepted the resignations of seven ministers of 19 Most crucially, Finance Minister José Antonio Ocampo, a renowned economist, has been replaced, as has veteran politician Celia López, Minister for Agriculture, who had been part of six previous governments. Ministers from right-wing parties La U and the Conservative Party have also left the cabinet. Most surprising has been Minister of Health Carolina Corcho, considered a close ally of Petro and someone he had stood behind, even in the face of criticism of the controversial health reform, which had triggered another cabinet crisis in early March, in which three ministers departed Petro's cabinet. In the same week, he declared the Congressional Coalition, a broad group of parties with which he had achieved a majority in Congress, to be broken. Though Petro has declared it a reconfirmation of his commitment to the popular mandate, some commentators see this shift as an attempt to regain governability and achieve his reform agenda after a gridlocked month in Congress. Others see it as a move away from pragmatism and towards the left, dropping moderate ministers, appointing close allies and breaking with Colombia's traditional political parties. The reshuffle prompted a fall in the peso, the stock market and in treasury bonds. The reshuffle comes as Petro reaches his lowest popularity rating since he took office. 57% of citizens polled now disapprove of his administration, compared to 35% in support. Nine months ago, support was at 56% and disapproval at 20 Vice President Francia Marquez has also seen a spike in her disapproval rating, now at 52%. Meanwhile, Jorge Ivan Ospina, mayor of Cali, is the worst-rated mayor in the country, with a disapproval rating of 83%. 73% of those polled believe that the country is getting worse. 59% said they thought the policy of total peace was on the wrong track. The poll is conducted by Invamer, data collected in April of this year. Guerrilla Group, the ELN, have confirmed the kidnap of Swedish filmmaker Uff Bilger Erlingsson, having accused him of conspiracy and espionage. He was reported missing in early March in Norte de Santander, and his release is promised by the ELN, contingent on a process involving the Swedish authorities. The ELN have also been accused of increased recruitment of minors this year, even amid their involvement in peace talks with the government. 
They denied the allegation, causing a public spat between Ombudsman Carlos Camargo and the ELN command. Meanwhile, the government have announced a new actor committed to the policy of total peace, criminal gangs in Medellin. A ceasefire has been announced and, according to Peace Commissioner Daniel Rueda, around 14,000 people will be involved, constituting more than 90% of the groups with territorial control in the city. However, the gangs have not yet been named and the date of negotiations has not yet been announced. Two people were killed and 14 injured in a brawl between fans after a football match in Medellin this week, a match between Atletico Nacional and Deportivo Independiente Medellin. The clash reportedly involved around 300 fans, the second time in one month that football has sparked violence here in Medellin after a riot in mid-April left 89 people injured. After Venezuelan opposition leader Juan Guaido arrived in Colombia to participate in the summit being held to discuss Venezuela, Colombia's Migration Authority announced that he had entered the country in an irregular manner, reportedly on foot via a trail. The Migration Authority then opened an administrative process against him, forcing him to leave the country for Miami. Guaido, who was only in the country for a matter of hours, has said that the expulsion was political persecution, which the Foreign Minister of Colombia denied. The summit itself launched with the aim of restarting talks between Venezuelan government and opposition ahead of next year's presidential elections did not result in a joint statement or concrete plan from those involved, despite the efforts of delegates from around 20 countries. Following the summit, Colombia's foreign minister issued a statement only on behalf of Colombia, recommending moves towards an electoral timetable for free, fair and transparent elections in Venezuela and the continuation of dialogue between government and opposition. Petro has announced a new agreement with the USA to open offices in Colombia to process migration applications by Colombians who wish to migrate there. There will be centres in various parts of the country, as well as offices opening in Panama and Guatemala. This is all with the aim of reducing the flow of irregular migration to the US through Mexico and reducing the numbers trying to cross the extremely dangerous border between Colombia and Panama at the Darien Gap. The interest rate has risen again in Colombia, now at 13.25% in attempts to control inflation which remains above target. The rate is the highest in 23 years. Unemployment, meanwhile, continues to fall, hitting 10% in March, significantly lower than the same month last year, but still well above the regional average of around 7%. Those were your top stories for this week. Thanks for listening. And we're back. This is segment three of episode 467 of the Columbia Calling podcast. Can you believe it? I've left the house to record this episode. I am at the offices of no less than Columbia Risk Analysis. Actually, it's a short walk from my home, so there's no excuse. I've brought my kit down here. We are here with the director of Columbia Risk Analysis, Sergio Guzman. No stranger to any of you, as he is still the most popular guest on the Columbia Calling Podcast. With him today, we've got Sara Torres. Both of them, well, they co-authored a report, a recent report on China and Colombia, so sort of Chinese investment or influence into Colombia. And that's what we're going to discuss. And there are a few of you out there, you know who you are, 
those of you who asked for Sergio and asked for us to talk about this subject. So pretty cool to be able to turn around so fast because those emails came in this week. But before we launch into the, well, let's say this relationship between China, infrastructure, investment, and so on and so forth into Colombia, we need to discuss, well, the fabulous chaos that is taking place in Colombia. So first and foremost, Sergio and Sara, welcome on the Colombia Calling podcast. Thank you, Richard. Thanks, Richard. It's great to be here and to all the listeners, thank you for your request. Exactly. The most popular man on the Columbia Calling podcast, more popular than myself. And so let's go through this. On this past Tuesday, Tuesday night, we got news of, I guess it was a tweet that he was going to ask for a, well, he, President Petro, was going to reshuffle his cabinet. We didn't really know what was happening. It went on all night, and then in the morning, things became more clear. Which one of you wants to decipher and explain? Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a first stab. Um, the larger issue here is President Petro is frustrated that his legislative agenda, in particular his healthcare reform, his pension reform and his labor reform are not getting the buy-in from the traditional political parties that are part of the government's coalition. That is the Liberal Party, the Conservative Party, and the National Unity Party. And prior to what happened on Tuesday, Petro had asked all the vice ministers of the ministries where those parties have political participation in the government to also present their resignations. Since that didn't work to get party leadership to reconsider their stance towards the health reform, which they're dead fast on opposing, Petro is moving faster than anticipated to switch them around. Because in the lower house, in the seventh committee of the lower house, the one that deals with social um, issues such as health care, uh, such as pensions, such as labor, etc. Um, a motion was presented for the health care reform to proceed to debate. This is very complex, but it shouldn't be complex. The vote passed 10 in favor, 8 against, with three abstentions from um, one member of the National Unity Party two members of the Conservative Party that stepped out of the room when the vote happened, and one member of the Liberal Party who voted in favor of the proposition. The vote, if followed party line, should have been 12 against, 7 in favor. Right? And so, what the party leadership of those three organizations said is, we're going to take action, disciplinary action, against those members because the order is to vote the project negatively. And so that really caused quite a bit of unrest because although it was the first step in the health reform passing, basically it, it drops it still in the water. Because if these three parties together do not accompany the reform, there's no way it goes through. There's no way it proceeds. And the same applies to the labor reform, and the same applies 
to the pension reform, which are very big tasks. In tandem, these parties are negotiating the National Development Plan that must be approved before May 7th. And if these parties want to play hardball with Petro, they will begin to vote down some of his proposals, including the extraordinary powers that by decree, the National Development Plan is giving President Petro. So this is sort of like the run-up to the storm when these parties uh, threaten their membership with disciplinary action, Petro loses it. And he says, this coalition is no longer. Uh, and so he demands all his cabinet to present their protocol resignation and to meet with him the next day in a cabinet meeting. That is sort of like the the, ante the antecedents to what happened. And I don't know, Sarah, if you want to yeah. talk about the fallout. Uh, more than the fallout, I want to just shortly put <laughs> um, Pet what we saw with Petro this week was kind of a reminder of what happened in his time as mayor. So it's become, it's a trend with Petro that when certain actors in government or whether it is in the council or in Congress or in his cabinet, go against or simply try to put pressure on what he wants, he pushes them away and resorts to the streets. So in, on Tuesday night, when after asking for the resignation, he also asked um, campesinos mm -hmm. to pressure uh, for reforms to pass. But in any case, this is, this is not surprising uh, because Petro tends to take more populist approaches as he is seen more cornered. And... Mm -hmm. um You know, this is it is a repeat of his time in the mayor's office. And we're seeing the same people being brought in. Yeah. Jaramillo Health, uh, Bonilla is Hacienda, yes. uh, and others. And, and it just like, it feels like the clock has been wound back a little bit. And we're getting this guy back on the balcony, yes. shouting out his populist rhetoric. He's, we've said before, uh, said he has been on the show before when, when Petro was elected, Uh, he said, we knew this was going to happen. I mean, there was, there was a predictability of the balcony speeches, you know, and it's only six months. You know, that's, that's what I feel. It's like, I, 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 what's next? <laughs> I mean, look, I've, I've, I've said on this podcast before, and I will say on this podcast again, there are four things people need to know about Gustavo Petro. Thing number one is there's no plan. None. He may say he has a plan, yeah. a huge project that he wants to do, but there's very little depth to, to his plans. Thing number two, he's a bad people manager. We saw in Bogota mayoralty that he had 65 cabinet secretaries for 19 positions. One every six months. So we're in the eighth month of the administration and we're already in the third cabinet. This holds, right? I was surprised it didn't happen earlier. Um, I was surprised Petro was able to manage some sort of very cacophonous cabinet um, this, this whole time. Thing number three, Petro's a bad executor of public policy and specifically public works. 
You know, he wasn't able to make Carrera Septima pedestrian in the center of Bogota. He's also not going to be able to give us a high-speed train from Bogota to Villavicencio or a train from Buenaventura to Barranquilla. That's just not going to happen. Much less, you know, the Bogota Metro is probably that, not going to be finished. That will come up in the next conversation. <laughs> thing, thing number four is uh, Petro gets uncomfortable uh, around institutions or organizations mm -hmm. that constrain his power. Mm -hmm. And so those four things held true the day before Petro was president and hold true today. Uh, a lot of Petristas have been very critical of my analysis, um, but I think that looking up, looking back on what, what I've said and what we've said at Columbia Risk Analysis about Petro, uh, it still holds. Now, the thing about the cabinet shuffle, why, why it's interesting is it suggests Petro is not, he may say he's open to dialogue, but he's not open to dialogue and he doesn't seem open to dissent. He yeah. doesn't like when people close to him are not loyal, people close to him he can't trust in them, and people close to him refuse um, some of his uh, initiatives and, and opinions. And, and just to echo that, the fact that he named Bonilla or Jaramillo into his cabinet signals that precisely. The fact that he named people who have been with him in the past, who have been loyal to him in the past. And in addition, at least Bonilla, he was part of, of the team, of the economic team during the campaign. So he, so in, in, in this sense, Petro prioritizes loyalties and trust over te technicality or, or technocrats, because technocrats tend to dissent and tend to bring numbers and data. And he's more of a rhetorical person than a statistical person, if we can put it in those terms. So, I mean, again, we have to wind this down, yeah. this part. We can suggest, suppose, imagine. My imagination from what you have said is that this national development plan is going to be reasonably um, unsuccessful. <laughs> I think in the best and the most balanced way of putting it. This is my assessment of what you've said. I, I think, you know, what I'd say is that Petro is going to be frustrated mm -hmm. because the pace of progress is much slower than his, than his vision for the country. And he may take that out on the technocrats, mm -hmm. his cabinet members, the deep state, uh, the traditional parties, the Colombian oligarchy, oh, yeah. the, the, you know, he's going to find culprits. Because of course, can't be him. He's a genius. He's 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 uh, you know yeah. He really thinks you know he's one of the smartest guys in the room in any room he walks into. Mm -hmm. uh, so obviously it can't be his fault. And he has a cadre of applause around him yeah. that continuously sort of give this impression that he's the man. He's the best. He's so transformational. He's one of the hundred most influential people in humanity. Right? <laughs> oh, that one, was that Time magazine? Yeah. It was Time. <laughs> that did uh, no favors to his ego. Yeah. Um, okay, so we know this. We, we, we have an idea of what's coming up. It's, 
exhausting already. <laughs> Six months in, it's exhausting. But the reason we are seated around this table is not because of the delightful chaos that has uh, unraveled and, and developed this past week. It's your report. It's your report which has, well, it, it has major traction, very timely. I know you did an event at the uh, Externale. Yes. Uh, so, well, I hope that was well attended. I bet it was, and so on. I've seen all the press, a lot of press about it. I've been reading up. And let's, let's talk about it. Let's talk about this report. Both of you authored it, but maybe, Sarah, you want to go, you want to plunge in and tell us a bit about this relationship, China-Colombia. Yes, of course. Um, well, first off, I want to start saying that this project started in December, so it's been, it was like five months of a lot of work. <laughs> and I think it definitely paid off, and we both think it's very important to have these discussions. And that is one of the main conclusions, that we're not having these <laughs> discussions. Um, so the backstory of this report is that China is increasing its investment not only in Colombia, but in the region. Colombia is, if we put it this way, it's the last country in the region where it's really getting involved. And that relates to Colombia's historic relationship with the U.S. Um, and so now that China is increasing its investment footprint, the question arises of, are we prepared? Are we ready? Are we ready to take advantage of the opportunities and mitigate the potential risks? And so our main conclusions were basically four. First, Colombia is not ready to engage with China. And this, we, we found this conclusion through interviews with people from different sectors, different locations, and there wasn't a uniform narrative toward China. There's not a clear understanding of what China means to Colombia and what its interests are for Colombia. And there's also a lack of understanding of how business works in China. And finally, the press and the different sectors are not really engaging in, in this sort of questioning and inquiry. And, and to add, we also <laughs> found that although China tends to be more tolerant to risk than other countries like the U.S. or European countries, despite that, China is, is not super, super happy to be in Colombia either because the conditions in Colombia are not as attractive as they could be elsewhere. And so that puts Colombia in a disadvantage, comparatively. When we, when we talk about these conditions, yes. what kind of conditions are we talking about? So in the report, we delve into three main conditions, three main risks. The first one is the lack of a judicial security. So the fact that, for example, the, Bo the Bogota Metro, the contract was signed, and despite being signed, Pedro decided to, oh, let's change the terms. Let's make it underground, even though it was already signed, which lets, which creates a precedent of we can change terms despite contracts being signed. That's on the first point. Second, regarding security, physical security, 
which we delve into through the CGN uh, mine experience. CGN bought a gold mine from Continental Gold in Buritica, and 40% of the mine has been taken over by Clan del Golfo. And although you would assume that the state would be there, there isn't too much state intervention. And so this creates a lot of a preoccupation, concern, especially from CGN to operate. Uh, and on this point, it's also important to note that some of our interviewees told us that Colombia is a high-risk post for diplomats and for private sector leaders. Chinese. Chinese, exactly. Chinese representatives. So they, they don't come here with families. They come here alone. And then the final point, the final condition is the social risk, which we delve into in the Buritica, no, sorry, in the Buritica, no, in the Emerald, Emerald Energy in Caquetá, where the local communities had blockades for 40 days and then uh, kidnapped some of the members of the, of the company and police and the SMAD members for 48 hours. And the fact is that the state didn't really respond for 40 days. And so this also contributes to, these, to this understanding and precedent of Colombia doesn't really have the guarantees companies want to operate, uh, including Chinese companies. Uh, yeah. So this, this, this mine in Buritica, you said 40%, is that right? 40% yes. is already... <laughs> It, they, the Clan del Golfo, so the, the principal, how do we put it, post-paramilitary armed yeah. group, they take, they're taking 40% of all earnings out of them? They're taking a no, cut? I, how is no, this? no, I think you have to qualify yeah. that. So their presence is estimated to be exactly. at 40% of the mine okay. itself. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't mean they're getting 40% cut of the earnings. That, that's not yeah. what was implied. Okay. Um, but the fact that they're there, there's been shootings inside, inside the mine. <laughs> this has been documented in social media. This has been documented in Blue Radio, etc. Uh, their presence is ubiquitous. Yeah. Uh, and their presence is so ubiquitous. We, we actually went there. And people were happy to talk about the mine. People were happy to talk about the Antioquia governorship. They were happy to talk about the Chinese even. But when it came to the Clan del Golfo, <laughs> yeah. they spoke very quietly. Surprising. Yes. Yeah. Under their breath. <laughs> I, well, and, and so both of you were there? Yes. Wow. Good adventure. Yeah. <laughs> Good adventure got you out of the office. Yeah. <laughs> But okay. Uh, I mean, this is not painting the most positive image of for let's say for Chinese and international firms in Colombia but I mean I wanted to say okay you know let's let's move to the the Bogota Metro you've mentioned it uh, Petro changing the terms uh, this company or the company does it have a good reputation in fulfilling contracts and getting infrastructure done? There's a couple of things about Chinese infrastructure globally that are concerning. Um, despite many of the corruption allegations or overcost that may present itself, Chinese are known for building 
fast mm -hmm. and building good quality products. Okay. They're also known for financing these uh, projects, providing their own labor in some circumstances where countries' uh, judicial or, or migratory rules allow them to do it um, and, and quickly getting out. Same time, you know, the question is, you know, how the Chinese finance these loans if they're making countries overburden themselves with, you know, huge uh, bilateral or, or huge sovereign debt that will later hamstring them and their ability to pay in the future. And this is what's happening in Sri Lanka. This is what's happened in places like Ecuador. Ecuador. This is what happens in places like Venezuela. Sometimes these agreements are done uh, in terms of exchanging for natural resources or pegging the price of debt to a price of oil, a barrel of oil at the same time. So all of these things ought to be taken into account. With the Bogota Metro, the Chinese company has proceeded and has a 19% completion rate on the Metro. However, they've not been able to present the detailed Metro studies yet. Uh, after three extensions of the term, the city of Bogota gave them until, I think it was May, May 4th? Yes. May 4th to present Star Wars Day. May 4th <laughs> to, to present uh, their, their, their final detailed studies. And if they fail to do that, they will be fined by, by, by the city government. At the same time, the fact that President Petro is introducing contract risk into the picture and saying, I want you to underground this metro. And by the way, uh, he tweeted famously, I have moved up my trip to China because I want to renegotiate the metro, uh, the Bogota metro. And we'd have to be very naive to think that that's the only thing that's going to take Petro to China or that's the only topic Petro may discuss with Xi Jinping if he does meet with him um, on the metro issue. And so the question is, what's on the table between Colombia and China? And our report really was not just trying to figure out what's on the table uh, between Colombia and China, but really let's, let's analyze and let's debate what are the pros and cons of a more aggressive China on the global stage, uh, a China that is growing its presence in Latin America, what are the opportunities for Colombia? Because you, you may think the tone is, is quite negative, but there are many opportunities yes. for Chinese engagement in, in Colombia. Um, and then what are the risks, which, which, which we've laid out, both from the perspective of Chinese companies coming into Colombia, but also from the perspective of Colombian authorities, uh, Colombian public finances, and transparency and corruption within our country. Yes, and I would also add that the examples Petro was, eh, Petro no, Sergio. Sergio, Petro is in my mind all the time. Well, he's in all of our minds, <laughs> he's got in your head. Yes, in my dreams. But anyways, <laughs> echoing with what Sergio was saying about the cases of Ecuador, Venezuela, and Sri Lanka, in the report we detail what happened in their experiences and what can Colombia learn from their experiences. Because If Colombia is going to engage with China, it has to do so in an informed way. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't face consequences like a 99-year lease or renegotiating debt that might put at risk some sort of so sovereignty or a level of sovereignty. 
but instead take advantage of the relationship. Like Chile and Peru have to a certain extent to the point that they have a trade surplus with China. Um, so yeah, so like we mentioned these these examples, these case studies precisely to highlight that it's not all dark. It's like we can learn in order to best take advantage of the relationship. I mean, that's the, one of the most important points that I had in my head because the the knee-jerk reaction is always negative. Um, but if Colombia can, you know, learn from these experiences and also get you know, serious infrastructure and other things put in, then it's a good thing. I mean, it's needed. But I I read in your report, is it there's 90 projects, 90 or something around that at the moment in Colombia? So we conducted public domain research mm -hmm. on what are the Chinese engagements in Colombia. Mm -hmm. And we realized, I mean, we found that there are five completed projects, 31 ongoing projects, three pending, and four failed projects. And then the rest, which are 47, mm -hmm. are potential projects that could be of interest to China. Okay. So this includes a lot of infrastructure projects, the 5G licitation, among many others that China could be interested given its past engagements, especially in technological infrastructure, etc. And I think, you know, it's important to, to, to mention one of the strengths that Colombia has versus many other countries in Latin America is we don't finance projects with sovereign debt yes. in direct relationship with the, the, the tenderer. That's what happened in Sri Lanka. That's what happened across Africa. That's what happened in Venezuela and elsewhere. For Colombia to ever issue one of these projects, it must first have a, a CONPES, which is a ministerial rank document that supports this. Then both the department and the national government must provide the financial guarantees that, they, that these projects will be paid for and not just that they will be paid for, but they will obey the debt ceiling that Colombia has. So China can say like, write down a number, I'll, I'll finance the project and, and, and let's go. What that does mean is the onus falls onto the Colombian authorities and for the Colombian regulators to carry out the tender project openly, transparently, fairly, for there to be competition from partners all over the world so that Colombia gets the lowest bid and the highest quality according yeah. to the agreement or according to the conditions that were laid out. If that happens, and if China wins these projects, then there should be absolutely no problem. Yes. With that, of course, um, it's important to also note that the Ley 80, which is the public contracting law, favors the lowest bidder. Mm -hmm. And China subsidizes these companies that are bidding. So obviously they are going to be a lot more competitive than you know, a French company or a, an American or a British company. So that is also something that ought to be re-examined because if China is increasing its footprint in Colombia, it should be seen and examined like, okay, how can we make this a fair competition? Um, and then on the other hand, I also wanted to, to 
mentioned that although Colombia doesn't negotiate with sovereign debt, something that we also included in the report was that Colombia doesn't know who owns its debt. <laughs> And Say that again. Colombia does not know who owns its debt. Meaning, so... We asked the central bank of officials, we asked people who emit bonds, uh -huh. and the farthest or the deepest they go is, oh, X percentage is owned by foreign governments, but there's no... Or, or held by held an by, investment bank. Yeah, but so we know, Colombia knows who owns our debt in the primary market, but not in the secondary market. We don't know what's called, we don't know who the ultimate beneficial exactly. owner of our bonds is. And that's that shouldn't be an issue if Colombia pays its debt on time. Exactly. Because if Colombia pays its debt on time, who cares who our debtors are? But if Colombia, for some reason, like many countries in Latin America, needs to at some point renegotiate its yeah. debt, yeah. who does it talk to? Yeah. What is Colombia's history like in repaying debt? Oh, absolutely stellar. Colombia is the only country in Latin America that's never defaulted on its debt. Yeah. Um, so again, we're in the clear. It's not yes. a risk. Uh, but with a president who likes to dream out loud, with a president who's very ambitious um, vision for the country yes. and who wants to construct massive infrastructure projects that lift the poor and the destitute and the abandoned parts of the country yeah. out of poverty, then we ought to be more mindful of the financial implications that that is. Not because these people don't deserve projects or because the government is not overdue to make very significant investments for it, but because we need to be aware of the risks that we may run into. Yeah, and in addition with this presidency, as we were mentioning at the beginning of the podcast, there are latent risks that definitely will have and will impact the risk premium of the country. And if these like dreaming out loud uh, trends continue, and if, for example, Ricardo Roa in Ecopetrol continues making statements that put at risk like the future of Ecopetrol, which is our biggest company, um, that will definitely have repercussions on the price of our debt. <laughs> I've read somewhere that, and you can't, I'm sure, mention or say that Saudi Arabia owns a lot of the debt. Correct. And, okay, and there we go. <laughs> so does the United Arab Emirates. Yeah. Uh, so does the Singapore Wealth Fund. Yeah. Uh, and that should be no problem. No. But who does, who, who does Banco Santander or JP Morgan or Citigroup Who do they represent? Because they also have a portion of these assets, right? It's not just sovereign wealth funds. Uh, Norway has a bunch of Colombian debt. Uh, the Netherlands has a bunch of Colombian the debt IDB. as well. The IDB has a lot of Colombian debt as well. Uh, we're not saying that this is bad or good. We're saying that wouldn't it be interesting to know who who we're exposed to, who, who has... Um, Who has that leverage? Yeah, I was going to say something to. more lewd, but yeah. <laughs> but it would be it would be interesting to know to be able to study business practice and to be able to study outcomes or potential outcomes from that. I understand. That. As a side question on that, if Norway owns this, you know, 
sovereign uh, funds of Norway own uh, debts. Is this why then they get so involved in the in the let's say the previous peace accords and so on, or is that actually there? I think it's I think it's two separate things because okay. there's so so the Norwegians have a sovereign wealth fund that has its own governance metrics and its own sort of independent assessment of investments. But the interesting part of your question is, do the Saudis, do the Emiratis, do the Chinese? And one of the things that's important for this report that we also talked about is there's a blur in the separation of business and state-owned enterprise when it comes to Chinese firms. And public officials, members of the business community are dreadfully unaware of the implications that that have. I'll give you an example. We went to Barranquilla and we talked to public public officials in Barranquilla and we asked them, so does the Chinese embassy get very involved when the Chinese come here sort of like asking around for projects? They're like, no, Chinese companies come alone. They hardly come with their embassy representatives. Whereas the Brits come with their embassy representatives and the Dutch come with their embassy representatives and so do the Americans. Which behooves the question like, do the Barranquilla city officials understand that the Chinese state-owned company representatives are also members of the Chinese Communist Party and therefore an extension of that country's government, which makes, uh, you know, it makes the presence of a Chinese diplomat in the room sort of... uh, like redundant, redundant right yeah that's absolutely fascinating which then leads back to the fact that colombia is not ready yes. they're not no it's they're not prepared a city like barranquilla in that respect so have you been approached by government ministries then to say listen get my team ready no no no, <laughs> <laughs> no. But okay, so, so but let's go back to that, some, some of the more sort of more basic things again. The main investments then are mining, infrastructure, and you were talking about uh, technological uh, investment. What else have we got on there? Are there any really bizarre investments? No, so, so, so the Chinese are involved in all sorts of businesses, import, export, uh, from Colombia and to Colombia. Yeah. There's a bunch of Chinese companies that sell auto parts, motorbikes, uh, you know, small, small scale manufacturing, etc. You know, the Colombian manufacturing industry, particularly textiles and mm-hmm. brand and, and retail items, uh, are very concerned about Chinese presence in Colombia, not only because of contraband, but also because of dumping practices that, that China uh, is known around the world to, to implement because um, members of the National Tax Collection Agency suggested that Chinese paperwork for their imports is is often undervaluing or underpricing very significantly some of the imports that Colombia gets. Um, And so that may lead to an artificial expansion of of Chinese business um, to the chagrin of Colombian retailers or people who are following uh, the rules, but again, this is not statistical. This was an impression by a source yeah. and a couple of others in in different parts of the country. And in addition, some of the um, business leaders we met who have been exposed or who have worked with China for over twenty years mentioned 
these practices, mm -hmm. but also mentioned how Colombia ought to be more prepared. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, for example, demanding rules of origin um, and also demanding proof that origin taxes, which China imposes on products that are being exported to elsewhere, mm -hmm. um, are actually paid. And that way you sort of mitigate the contraband leaving China and entering these countries at a lower price. It, it just sounds like there's so many different issues at yes. play in this way. I, I have, again, another anecdotal thing is uh, I did a lot of studies down in Santa Fe and Los Martires in Bogotá and the, and the Calle Trece. And I noticed, well, not only are all of the goods coming in, and how can a shop possibly run only selling, you know, what are they called, cases for telephones? Uh, but that in a lot of these warehouses down on the Calle Trece, they were being run by, by Chinese people in them, uh, in the management offices at the back and on the till. And they didn't only knew enough Spanish just to order the staff around. And uh, by the cash tills, they had the translations into Mandarin or Cantonese there at the cash till. And it was, it was, for me, it was fascinating to watch. I'm not saying that this is some sort of invasion, but you have to look at it like, well, no, you know, these, these shops are selling Chinese trinkets, Colombian artesanias, <laughs> made in China. <laughs> but is this all part of a bigger picture as well? I mean, did you see on that level? I think there's multiple approaches to, to China. And what you're talking about is sort of like the lowest touch yeah. impression of, of China that's sort of dominated by these ideas. Oh, they're gonna they're yeah. gonna take over Colombian resources, they're gonna they're gonna uh, dump their their products into our market, artificially lowering prices so that then then they can crowd us out, um, etc. A more sophisticated view of, of China suggests you know, China, the quality of Chinese products is increasing. Mm -hmm. The price relationship versus quality that Chinese products offer, say, versus German products or U.S. products or, or, or whatever, that gap is, is becoming more narrow. Mm -hmm. And Chinese are pragmatic in terms of business, yeah. right? Yeah. There's also this idea that Sarah was saying, you know, We've been investing in China for 20 years. We've been working with Chinese companies. But the pandemic really highlighted the fact that supply chains globally are tethered to China and that supply chains globally are heavily dependent on Chinese market openness, Chinese domestic politics, and obviously what's happening geopolitically around the world. And they're beginning to say, maybe we should diversify. Maybe we should, you know, China's been great for us, but maybe we should look at other markets. Maybe we should look at Indonesia. Maybe we should look at Taiwan. Maybe we should, uh, Vietnam. Vietnam. Maybe we should start our own, taking advantage that the United States wants to promote nearshoring, right? So that's a more sophisticated version that has much, much more agency about, about Chinese investment. Thing is, not everybody we spoke to thinks that way. Yeah. Um, and so I think I think this report is sort of like the first step in a very long conversation. As you say, a long conversation. And at the conclusions at the end, obviously, Chinese investment will continue. Of course, it will. 
I, I am sure of that, even despite the challenges put forward by, by Sara uh, in, in the opening uh, gambits of this. But I, I'm, I'm curious in the end, in the total sort of, let's say, business, I mean, and I'm not a business expert, you guys are, what percentage is, 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 is let's say, the investment from China in relation to the US, for example? China is the second largest trading partner, trading partner for, for Colombia. Mm -hmm. uh, and Colombia has a huge deficit. There's other countries like Australia, uh, like Spain, like the United Kingdom that have very significant investments in Colombia. And China is nowhere near that level at this point. But as Sarah pointed out, the possibilities for growth mm -hmm. are, are enormous. Yeah. And with that, um, it's also important to mention that some of the... I mean, several of the people we interviewed agreed, mentioned that there aren't that many alternatives. So if China is offering to build a road from, I don't know, like hypothetically from Buritica to Medellin, let's say, but the US, nor Spain, nor UK, nor France are offering alternatives the only option is china and right and something we mentioned in the report is that right now in this current geopolitical context in which the u.s several european countries have shifted their interest or their focus on the war in ukraine several of these countries in the global south especially in latin america and africa have been left aside and so in that context china which has the capacity, has the financial muscle, has the infrastructure uh, experience and the know-how, is taking advantage of that absence and that vacuum to knock on the doors of companies that decide to leave. I point out also, you know, I saw a very good interaction on Twitter where somebody, you know, an African said, you know, when the Chinese come to Africa, they open a railroad or open an airport or build a highway. When the Europeans come to Africa, they come with a lecture. And then somebody responded, somebody responded and says, well, but you know, the Chinese investments are never with, without strings attached. And he says, you know, here comes the lecture. <laughs> I, think, I think on that, it's a fair place to bring this to an end. I like that very much. I think uh, I... Well, I know that the report has been widely read and has been incredibly popular. So let's just say, let's celebrate and, and uh, of course, congratulate you both Thank on you. something that is clearly, you know, has more than five months on this. Uh, you deserve a rest. Well, not only that, <laughs> Richard, but, but you know, what, what we're trying to do at Columbia Risk Analysis is many more reports like this. Okay. Um, and so we are calling for people who listen to this podcast to subscribe to our products because okay. this is what helps us finance these sorts of reports this is of course what pays the bills over here in our offices that you see and and we want to do much more of this work because we feel that colombia ought to have more information to make better decisions uh, both at the public level but mm -hmm. also at the private level and have a strategy because we lack a strategy. <laughs> oh yeah, as a small business owner, I know all about that. <laughs> so, so just tell us, uh, promote yourselves a bit more in this, in this wonderful office with lots of employees, with the website and so on. 
Well, our website is www.colombiariskanalysis.com. You can find us in Twitter, Instagram, at, at Colombia Risk Analysis. I mean, no, Colombia Risk. At Colombia Risk. And then on LinkedIn, Colombia Risk Analysis. You can follow us. Uh, we have a podcast that comes out every Wednesday. It's a lot shorter. It's like yeah. two and a half minutes. <laughs> but, <laughs> right. but it's basically the roundup of yeah. the main issues of the week mm -hmm. and short and sweet analysis. And we also publish special reports like this one about subjects we think are crucial for a, the national dialogue for us to think about to have a better strategy towards the future um, hopefully construir país construir país <laughs> oh wow you sound like you're in a balcony now uh, <laughs> <laughs> let me just say thank you then. thank you uh, so much for this for this it's really good I mean really interesting stuff and of course the listeners asked you know between us we've all delivered so thank you so much Sara Torres and thank you Sergio Guzman thank you Colombia Risk Analysis for the use of your amazing offices and uh, this will be a great show I know that you out there have enjoyed listening to this one we really covered a lot of, of ground uh, the Chinese Colombia should we say conundrum um, and of course we are a little bit on in the intro about uh, the beautiful chaos that is Colombian politics at the moment well, kind of always but certainly right now so thank you again for listening this has been episode 467 I've been Richard McCall for Columbia Calling bye bye the Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967 Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. We are also sponsored by BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator providing a wonderful range of exclusive small group shared tours for those over 50 along with customizable private tours to both popular and off-the-map destinations throughout this beautiful and diverse country. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a unique private package of your own, just complete the form on the Columbia Calling website, that's www.columbiacalling.co, or the BNB Colombia Tours website, that's www.bnbcolombia.com, and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all of your questions and to start the planning of your exclusive Colombian adventure. So that's bnbcolombia.com and latinnews.com. Thank you for supporting our sponsors. Ya